Are we recording? No, too much, too much, too much, too much. Hey, everybody! Welcome to Ducks Watch Together. I'm Josh. I am Kylie. And on today's episode, we talk about the top five horror movie influencers, or at least five that we each came up yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, because as I was doing this list. I was like, there are so many options for this that, like, narrowing it down to five was hard. Uh, especially even for a genre that, like, I don't necessarily always care for, but still, the when it's done well, it's done really well, and there are good people to talk about who influence the positive aspects of the genre. Mm-hmm. Before we jump right in, Kylie... Uh, I need to respond a little bit to uh, some things that happened while I was not on the podcast. So, listeners, uh, I did a list wrong. I did a list very wrong. Yeah, you also have it written down wrong from the beginning. So, like, (laughs) well, and you know, I'm going to say something. Yes. Being chaotic neutral chaotic okay. people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> One of them. When you sent me that list, I didn't respond with this list is incorrect. Yes. I just let it be. I was like, Josh has put this into the world and I shall do with it what I will. And I will fully say that my <laughs> qualifier subtitle for the list was my list is probably wrong and any discrepancies are factual. <laughs> so just putting that out there. If I had known that the list was like women or action films starring women, I would have had a different list. Yeah. Not just women in action films. So, anyway. It was a hard list. It was. Yeah, yeah. Although I really enjoyed both Your and Sly's takes and insights on not only that list, but Captain Marvel as well. Um, my brief. Uh, Are you going to yell at me because I called. Uh, Jaimon Hansu a chameleon? No, cause not. You, you called him that. In- I did also. Yes, he's a chameleon. <laughs> no, uh, my brief uh, review of Captain Marvel, oh. as I have not given this on mic yet. Uh, Captain Marvel. Really like the parts where Captain Marvel is like being a person, interacting with humans on Earth, following a plot line. On board. Blah, 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 space nonsense. Didn't care for that part. But... Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with Captain Marvel. Um, yeah, so Captain Marvel I like a lot. Uh, I actually have it higher up on my Marvel rankings than a couple movies that I think are technically better than it, like a Doctor Strange, but I was like, no, I'd rather watch a Captain Marvel because the parts that I do like about Captain Marvel are much stronger than the parts that I don't like. Yeah, Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, uh, Ben Mendelsohn's a, a champ forever. <laughs> Also, there is a section of Captain Marvel. Uh, you 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 did a small pop corner, but I I have to I have to reactivate the Captain Marvel pop vinyl segment. Mm-hmm. There are some pop vinyls that you did not mention of our good friend Goose. That's because I didn't know about didn't know about. Them. Oh, were they released afterwards? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I just I was excited about our good friend Goose getting so many different pop vinyls. Yeah, he has one where he's like. Bleh. The flarkin. There's, like, different stages of this? Yeah, I don't like it. Like, there's... I've seen some of them, I don't like them. There's full-on, like, flarkin. Uh-huh. And then there's, like, in-process flarkin. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like it. I'm on board. Freaks me out. Give me all three. Anyways. Yes. Alright, sorry. I had to, like, get that out there in the world. Be like, one, Mar- Captain Marvel opinion. Two... Pop. Pop 
<laughs> Three, I was dumb. Great, moving on. You're not dumb. I did not stop anything yeah, it's from fine. happening. I liked it. It was good. All right. Um, inquiry of the half fortnight time? Sure. Uh, listeners, this is a simple one, just for time's sake, for our sake here. Uh, friends... If you want to tell us who is a horror influencer that you know about, please do so. You can do so at friendofafriendpodcast.squarespace.com. You can also do it on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Leave us a five-star review or any star review and hit that subscribe button. <laughs> it helps us get new listeners. You can also find us on Facebook at Friend of a Friend Podcast. That's not a good horror sound effect. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Give it to me again. Uh, <laughs> hit the subscribe button. Hit that subscribe button. <laughs> And it helps us get new listeners just like that. You can also find us on Facebook at Friend of a Friend Podcast. And now on with the show. All right, Kylie, do you have any uh, rules, any provisos, any uh, quid pro quos? Yeah, I had to keep it within horror movies. Okay. Because, like, I'll say something. Okay. Technically, in some way, some ways, some ways not, Jim Henson could have been made on this list because of his use with puppetry and things and how that has helped affect. Um, I did not put, however, put Jim Henson on this list as, uh... <laughs> Maybe that's a personal fear, you know? Well, no, like, Muppets are used in a lot of horror films in yes. uh, Passion of the Christ. And so, <laughs> I just, I, I, like, like, a person like that, I left off the list because, yes. like... I don't know how much he would appreciate me being like, Hey, you know what? You're a horror movie influencer. Aww. <laughs> He'd be like, no. No. No, thank you. <laughs> Your son is also a horror movie influencer. Ugh, in many ways. <laughs> um, you were, you were mentioning something that you wanted to talk about on podcast? Yeah, that was it. Oh, okay, perfect. <laughs> um... Yeah, I just, it for me, it was just people that influenced um, the horror genre in general. Um, in I, good ways or not. <laughs> in good or bad ways. Yes, I guess in good or bad ways. Because, although I will say, much with every other genre, I think that a lot of horror, horror goes in stages. And I think that my list maybe represents... Not necessarily in chronological order, but in a lot of order, those in, in, in ways, those stages. And with that being said, every stage plays out at some point and becomes a stereotype and repetitive. So there is the ups and downs with that. Ebbs and flows. Ebbs and flows, indeed. Yes. All right. Um, we th- All right. And let's just jump in. Uh, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Number five. This is the most recent. He's a man named Jason Blum. Oh! (laughs) Crossover! Where's Jason Blum on yours? Four. Okay, he's not your number one. Yeah. I thought about putting this in chronological order, which would put Jason Blum as my number one, and I did not allow that. No, I went with... I don't even know what my order is. I think I just went with in the order that I see their influence mm-hmm. on contemporary horror film. Ooh. Yeah. I don't know if I went straight contemporary, but I also just did, like, the history of it. Yeah, absolutely. Way. Yeah. Um, but, so Jason Blum, with his Blumhouse, uh, which <laughs> primarily is horror, and I understand that there's some Blumhouse tilts out there. But, like, I don't... his bread and butter is horror. Yeah. Yeah. Blumhouse's truth or dare. Yeah. Um, so, oh, man. so Jason Blumhouse, he comes in and he's like... Jason Blum. Yeah, sorry. 
it comes in and he's like, no longer shall horror movies not be in my company. They shall only be part of my company. Uh, which isn't exactly what happened. Yeah. But, like, he went through, he has created this model, which this model had already existed, but he creates this model in a bigger studio sense where it's, this is the main focus of it. Where he's like, I'm just gonna give directors small amounts of money, they're gonna make a film, I'm gonna put it out there, and I'm gonna make all the money in the world mm -hmm. from this. And so, like, other companies did this, like, these bigger studios did this, but they also made other films. They made action and dramas and They whatnots. made their tent poles. Yes. Yeah. And then, like, they had their horror sidelines. They had their sequels for the Nightmare on Elm Streets. But Blumhouse has essentially been like, this will be the center focus of it. And yeah. this will be the tentpole. This has also influenced another company in some ways. And that other company is A24. Mm -hmm. A24 is a, is a film studio that does produce other things that aren't horror. However, I feel like they're kind of leaning in a little bit more to their prestige horror in ways of like, Hereditary being released nationwide, mm -hmm. and that make being their biggest yeah. film of yet, and so like they are doing a similar Blumhouse thing of where they're like, okay, horror movies can make us money. We're gonna give these directors small amounts of money, and they're gonna go out and release these films, and we're gonna yeah. make a good payback for it. A twenty four has a little bit more of a model that is acquiring a film. They mm -hmm. don't. They don't. They do make films there, but they don't make as many as Blumhouse does. They acquire a lot of their films. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I like your comparison to A24 and Blumhouse because what they're both doing is they're both finding this hole in the Hollywood industry. Like, the major studios are tent poles for days. All they're doing is blockbusters. All they're doing is trying... They don't... That middle class of film doesn't exist anymore. So we kind of have indie film and blockbuster film and never nary shall the twain meet however um blumhouse and a24 and Annapurna for 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 some levels are trying to recreate that middle class of film now they're not making it at the same level of middle class it's not the 40 to 60 million dollar range it's still the like 10, 10 to, to 20, 20. but still yet they're doing that model and they're doing it successfully um when I put people on my list this time through, what I tried to do was pair a person with a film. And so I was trying to think of, like, what is the moment in time and what is the film in which this broke through? So I put Paranormal Activity also on here because that seems to be the one where he, what Jason Blum kind of um, made his mark with his style of filmmaking and the the way he produces films. And yet that seemed to be the one that for a very long time, Paranormal Activity was a film that influenced not only the genre of horror, but film in general in that sense of... Now, I understand that it's not the first... Um, steady cam or not steady cam uh, handheld like found footage, found footage type movie it's not the first by any means but it, it I think popularized it Again. in a way that hadn't been done since the Blair Witch Project and Cloverfield a little bit before it and stuff like that and then Oren Pell who is the director of that film yeah feels like such an unsuspecting Yes. I don't I almost said victim character in <laughs> yeah. all of this because he just makes this film and then Jason comes and picks it up and that is that you're right that is the film that probably gives Blumhouse 
its jump yes. start of anything. Well, and it's made for, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'm fairly certain it is made for less than $2 million. Mm-hmm. And it goes on to gross over $100 million. And it spawns off... It has four sequels and a spinoff. Yeah, and so within that, it's just the franchise that keeps on giving. Like, Jason Blum is not only doing the middle of the, the, the market, he's also saying, but what I like that the big ones are doing is they're making franchises, and they're doing that. And you can see that even with Happy Death Day and a Happy Death Day to You, make something that people want to go see more of and keep making it till they don't want to see it anymore. And I think he's also giving people who... He's giving some... He's giving work to people who we might not necessarily give work to yeah. in the way of, like, I, I know that, like, M. Night Shyamalan, like, we don't particularly like him, but he gave M. Night Shyamalan yeah. the chance. Absolutely. He gave him a second chance. And he gave Jordan Peele his chance. Yeah. And, and that's where I wanted to transition with into this is because Jordan Peele, I think, is the new kind of, like, hot guy on the street in terms of horror. Yeah, and, like, people are like, oh my gosh, Twilight Zone, I'm excited, Jordan Peele. I mean, I am excited for the Twilight Zone. and I and Are I, you going to are you gonna get the thing? I'm not going to get the thing. I'm going to try to wait for it to be somewhere else. Okay. Um, if somebody else has the thing and they want to share a CBS All Access password, I'd watch it. But... Also, I know that Peel is only kind of the face of that. He's, he's a producer and he's host. He's a producer and host. And that, that does, that is sway, but he's not the writer or director on mm-hmm. it. But through Jordan Peel, Jason Blum, what he did is he allowed him to start to, he allowed him to make Get Out, which is changing horror in a way that I don't think we can fully see yet. He's currently the only one playing in in his sandbox, and until we see more people trying to get into that sandbox and play, we're not going to really know how it's going to affect. Now, not and that's not me saying that there's never been political statements made in horror films because that's just not true. That's been made that's as foundational to the genre as anything else that is foundational to the genre. If he feels like the most recent one who's like really yes. And it feels like what he's doing is is instead of playing with some of the very standard political ideas that are bandied about in horror films, he's looking at new cultural ideas. And that's what feels new, really new and fresh about Jordan Peele. And so the reason why Jason Blum makes my list instead of a Jordan Peele is because Peele couldn't do what he did without the foundation that Blum and Paranormal Activity in a lot of ways laid for him. Well, well, and I think that... I, well, I, I excluded Jordan Peele, essentially, because he is, like, the... He was, like, the inspiration for us to even, like, do yeah. this list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, like, oh, Jordan Peele, he's... I, I, it's hard to say, he's influenced horror as of right now. But we don't know. Yeah. We have an idea. He's gonna influence yes, horror. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's only got two films under his belt so far, yeah. so... Uh, cool. Uh, my number five is uh, George A. Romero and Night of the Living Dead. Man, crossover. Yeah. We're... <laughs> you were like, I have the most basic list, and I'm over here like, crap. <laughs> we have the same list. <laughs> Where is George Romero on your list? Um, You know, I was going to just decide who goes as it went on. Oh, perfect. But I'll, I'll put him at number four. Hey, there you go. So we've got our fours and our fives out of the way. Yeah. Um... The reason George A. Romero was a little you bit... Did, you did Night? Yes, I did Night okay. of the Living Dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, George A. Romero was on my list because not only through establishing pretty much what we know as the modern 
definition of what a zombie is. He didn't create the word zombie, he didn't create the idea of zombie, but all of those rules that we know zombies to have or that they get broken later, those came from George A. Romero. He establishes what the cultural zeitgeist idea of a zombie is. He brings that to our societal attention and he does this with Night of the Living Dead. And Night of the Living Dead comes out in the late 60s where horror films are in a little bit of a transition from 50s b-movie schlock kitsch and the studio's kind of like they're fun over fear like there might be a few jump scares but for the most part they're not there so bad it's good yes and then in the 70s you kind of get the more kind of psychological horror slash the more graphic horror slash the more realistic horror that's coming in and we're starting to build this foundational genre. We're trying to figure out what it is in that time there, and that's where we're establishing a lot of things. And Romero hits right in the middle of that with um, 1968's Night of the Living Dead. And what he does is he helps this transition of this genre to be more adult, to be more scary. He's still taking these ideas that are considered to be B-movie or schlocky, but he's giving them these moments of realism, this this element of truth and honesty and then he's pairing it with commentary that hasn't been really associated with the genre in a long time because it's societal commentary on many many different elements that we didn't really want to talk about in the 60s of our, and stuff like that and so it becomes this overarching kind of horror movie that introduces the idea that scary should horror movies can and should be scary not schlocky fun yeah and i mean like so as we were saying b movies were basically how most horror movies were made and this is the one where it actually takes it seriously yeah. and it creates our our villain or our antagonist as some uh, antagonist as something that is something to fear he takes monsters seriously at this point and his commentary i believe with this film uh, this come when was night of the living dead made 68 68 okay Mm -hmm. so we're past the korean war um when do we start the vietnam we're right about about. and so like with this he is doing those things of like i'm gonna start making commentary in this i'm gonna put societal horrors in our thing. Yes. Um, I don't associate all of these people with a specific movie, and I just plan to kind of talk about the most influential ones. So also, I think... Oh, technically the Vietnam War apparently goes from 55 to 75. I don't really know much about that, but there you go. Okay. Yeah. So we have involvement in Vietnam, yes. at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, something with Dawn of the Dead, his original, that yes. is where he even goes further, and he's like, look at what our society is. Yes. And something that George A. Romero does in both of those films is our essential they're not the leads because Barbara's the lead of Night of the Living Dead but and I don't think in Dawn of the Dead it's hard to say who the lead is but he has two people he has two people of color as a forefront in it who are essentially there mostly to survive and that is one of the horrors of the end of Night of the Living Dead of things and Dawn of the Dead so 
as Jordan Peele said, bringing him back into the conversation, yeah. when George A. Romero died, he thanked George A. Romero for being able to start having people of color in horror films as some part of a main cast, as a main lead. Like, he was one of the ones who gave him that chance. And when Night of the Living Dead came out and they were like, is there politicalness? Are you trying to say something with that casting? He was, at first, he was necessarily like, no. Yeah. He was a good actor. I hired him. I wish I knew this actor's name. Um, I might have written it down. Dwayne Jones. Dwayne Jones. Um, and then from there, people kind of infused some commentary on that. And he's like, I'm glad that you are putting something on there. I'm glad that my statement, what I have said, has put permeated within this culture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's what George A. Romero was really about. Besides those two films... His filmography. Oh no, I love Martin. Martin's great. <laughs> Beside those two, like those three films, George A. Romero's filmography isn't spectacular. Yeah, but... I mean, he always keeps those ideas, mm-hmm. but he's never, never quite reaches those heights again. And it's sometimes through that first person through the wall, you know, takes a lot of takes a lot of beatings for what they're doing and we can see in hindsight how successful they were and what they were doing but it doesn't always translate to a long and fruitful career and so i think in horror circles a lot of george a. romero's films are beloved. beloved but maybe not in the mainstream um yeah cool cool so josh guess what we're on our number threes wait what's your number four Jason Bloom. Oh crap so i have to do my number three now yeah because we've done our, <laughs> yeah because we've said it we yeah yeah um, alright, I'm gonna give this to Dick Smith. Oh, okay. Do you know who that is? No. Okay, not a director. Okay. Um, however, he is the special effects and makeup artist engineering behind The Exorcist. Oh, okay. Okay, so why do I, why, why do I bring up The Exorcist and not like William Fre- Fre- Friedkin? Friedkin? Yeah. Um, mostly because I, that film is kind of boring. <laughs> But the reason why I think The Exorcist has its, as much pull as it does is because of the special effects of mm-hmm. it. Um, so instead of having Jim Henson here, we're going to talk about Dick Smith, who's, yeah. go- who's coming in. And he essentially, the special effects on The Exorcist are kind of one of the big original, like, oh my gosh, they were able to do this in a film. And it was, like, terrifying for a lot of people. The most famous ones are the head spins and the crab walk mm-hmm. um, with it and the girl levitating in the air. Yes. These special effects are the things that make that film as memorable as it is and holds it in such a high regard as it is still. Yeah. There are other things in that film, including Linda Blair's performance and the score that I think really help into it, but I think that without those special effects, we would not remember that film as fondly as we do. I think that his influence on that goes on to influence so many other direct horror directors with things like The Thing, with um, films that are using those practical effects that don't just, today we rely on so much CGI, but I think that this is the film that really pushed forward of like, we can do so much more with this genre. We can right. show these things. And, like, we have to be able to build and create these things on our own. I think that Dick Smith was one of the first people that, like, really pushed it forward. Nice. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, I talked about one of them non-famous directors. Yeah, look at you. Um, my number three is... 
My number three is like a team of folks, but also kind of wrapped up into one idea in general. Uh, so my number three is... Jim- is it the three amigos? It's the three amigos, <laughs> yeah. Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, Oh Martin no, Clark. I was going with um, Alfonso Cuaron, <laughs> Guillermo del Toro, and Inuritu. Oh, Guillermo, interesting. <laughs> Uh, no, my number, my number three is technically Jamie Lee Curtis. Okay. But it's also John Carpenter, Carpenter. Halloween, and the concept of the final girl. I have John Carpenter on here, and one of my bullet points for him was the final girl. Yeah. But I have a few other bullet bullet points. And the reason why that, like, I did, I went with Jamie Lee Curtis, and, like, John Carpenter is, like, the sub-list of this is only because I feel like a lot of Carpenter's career, though it's in horror, there's a lot of non-horror films that he also makes that seems to be relevant as well. So I just... Big Trouble in Little China being one of them. Yeah, and even something like They Live is more Mm -hmm. of a sci-fi, you know? And so I just felt like his genre, his influence on the genre is very specific to, or at least in my... I could be missing lots of things. It's very specific to... Halloween. Yes, Halloween, Final Girls, and what that means. So Jamie Lee Curtis, who establishes the very first kind of final girl in... in, in... She's the most popular okay, one. Okay. However, yeah. I I would say maybe the very first one would be the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay, I didn't know the timelines of that as well. That one comes out first. Yeah. But like, and Chainsaw with a space. Very important to me. <laughs> For a film I don't like yeah. or necessarily care about, I care about there's a space in between. Um, but I, I think that that one would be the first final girl, but no one knows. I don't remember that actress. I don't know that character's the name. The thing that I remember from Texas Chainsaw Massacre is Leatherface. Yeah. So, and, and him in the street with the chainsaw swinging yes. it around. And which is really interesting because I think in a lot of the Final Girl movies, the horror icon, whether it be uh, Michael Myers, Jason, Freddy, whatever it is, Ghostface, Ghostface, they almost seem to culturally um, make more of a have more of a presence in culture than the girls themselves. But this whole idea of the resurgence of the slasher film, the resurgence of, or not resurgence, but like this idea that there is a formula to horror movies that they end up lampooning in Scream, that Wes Craven plays in, that uh, just becomes what the horror genre is for so many years. You know, creepy guy killing kids for moralistic lessons. And though that's not what they established necessarily in Halloween, it's what people take from Halloween and it's how they move forward with it. And even so, like, I was going through and trying to figure out how to get, because I didn't want to necessarily put them on the list per se, because I think it's a subgenre, but how do you get, like, James Wan and Saw in here? Because, for me, he seems to be very derivative of this aspect of things, whereas it's not always a final girl, so to speak, but there is people trying to survive really terrible, horrible, gross things. His just happens to be turned up to a notch, Mm -hmm. you know? And the Conjuring world and this Insidious world, they seem like they're dealing in more supernatural elements rather than, like, creepy dude elements, but they're all kind of similar survival tales. The weird thing about The Conjuring and Insidious is almost like the one of the minor conflicts of it is like the marriage between the people. Yes. Of like Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne of yes. like, like how are we gonna fix this together? Yeah. Um, and so like 
he's almost like, no more final girl, final couple. <laughs> so it just seemed like he was playing in the same sandbox, mm-hmm. yet the the, influ- the influence up top is always back to Halloween, I guess. You know? mm-hmm. so, yeah. I mean, like, I feel like the only other, the, the other horror what's it even called series that doesn't feature a final that features a main character who is the most iconic of his thing is evil dead right ash is the ash is the only is the yeah is our hallmark of that is because there's no creepy mccreeperson like there's a book yeah yeah it has a face on it yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) but and i mean like other than that it is like those horror icons so slasher are the things that we remember yeah yeah, the elements that they all put together are that are, are are what's more more impactful. So I guess John Carpenter is my number two. Okay, I'm great. gonna I'm gonna slide in. Other than just the final girl, is that John Carpenter? Um, really, he's not the first one to do this. However, Halloween is the one that popularizes it. Of like, let's make a film. So in his time. The amount he made Halloween on was like 1.3 million of his time money. Small amount now yeah. for to make a movie. And so he goes through and he's like, I'll make a cheap horror movie. We'll paint the walls ourselves. We'll do this all ourselves. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, you can make a, you can make a horror movie on the cheap and make a huge blowout. Yeah. Halloween is the one that's like, huh, this is the model yep. that we are going to follow and we are going to be destroyed by. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, he also... Him, and even to, like, John Williams' credit, they're the ones that are like, horror movies also need a good score. Because without that score, nothing there matters. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Halloween, in its original state, when he showed it without a score, people were like, and then he was like, give me an hour. And then he put on... (laughs) He's like, hang on, everybody! <laughs> Refill your popcorn buckets. I've got some music to make. And then, like everyone's like, oh, and so like he also shows like we need to have a good score in this in order to have any f- to have resonance with a lot of the audience members. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my number two. <laughs> <laughs> it helps when there's crossover. Yeah. Uh, my number two is. Again, a little bit of a triumphant, but it's represented with Carl Lemley Jr. Wow, I have no idea who yeah. this is. Carl Lemley Jr. is the head of Universal Studios and the person who brought us Dracula and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and the Wolfman and mm-hmm. the Invisible Man and the Mummy. Okay, the Monster and, Flicks. Uh, all of Monster those squads. Monsters. The Monster Squad. Um, so Carl Lemley Jr. is the head of Universal Studios in the late... Uh, in the 30s through the 40s and 50s. And he is the son of Carl Lemley Sr., who is the founder of Universal Studios. And Universal Studios is a, a, a studio that is, in its infancy, is a mid-major studio. So it would be on the level of, like, a, a Lionsgate or really, like, an A24, like we talked about, like, the lower level of studio. Like, makes money, has some things, doesn't have the big stars, doesn't have the big hits, but exists. And Carl Lemley Jr. takes over the company, and what he is into as a, as, a, as a person is he's like, I love these kitschy, campy monster films, these horror films. And he's like, 
I'm gonna make Universal's name by making these movies. So he was kind of the Jason Blum before Jason Blum. And what Carl Lindley Jr. does, and full honesty here, Carl Lindley Jr., like most people of classic Hollywood, not the nicest human on all the land, and you can go do some research on some of the things that he's done, but also not anything like terribly bad, just like didn't treat his actors all that well and was a money-grubbing studio head. Like, all right, he's a capitalist. Great. He's an American. American. I'm American. Um, <laughs> but what, what do you mean? <laughs> but what he does is he allows... He starts to build this idea. He builds these concepts of monster movies. And one of his first big hits is actually with Lon Chaney Jr. And he is in The the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And he takes The Hunchback and makes him this really well-known character. And then building upon that, he brings in Bela Lugosi to do Dracula, Boris Karloff to do Frankenstein, and so on and so forth. Lon Chaney Jr. does several films in different roles, including... The Phantom. Uh, uh, the the what? Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom of the Opera, as well as uh, the Wolfman, mm-hmm. and some points as well, and also like the creature from the Black Lagoon is in here. There's lots of things. It's like so, the OG Doug Jones. Yes, although also like the worst. Like Lon Chaney Jr. is like Errol Flynn levels of like bad human. Hey, like I just met in his like acting. Yes, fair. <laughs> yes, fair. Doug Jones seems like a nice person. Doug Jones is a really nice person. Yeah. So Carl Emily Jr. What he does is he takes he takes Universal from being this mid-major studio to being one of the studios, and he does it on the back of his monsters and his horror movies. And he knows that he uses these ideas that started in German expressionism and German film and brings them over here to help create this idea of what a horror movie is and can be in the American audience and just goes about trying to scare everybody with his monsters. And to the point where now these monsters are some of the most iconic figures in all of our cinematic landscape or in all of our cultural landscape as well. I think it goes a long way to say that Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and all of them wouldn't be as popular if it wasn't for this era of film in which he tried, in which uh, Carl Lemley Jr. uh, is the head of Universal Studios and brings them all forward. Nice. Yeah. Any honorable mentions? Um, I've got... I got Wes. (laughs) Wes Craven, um, I've got Alfred Hitchcock, but only because I don't think Alfred Hitchcock fits in the modern definition of horror. I think he's more like suspense thriller kind of thing. Hold on to your hats, boys and girls. Um, but ooh, maybe, there you go. Uh, because like, anyway, we can talk about it. Um, not in a bad (laughs) way. Spoilers. Hitchcock absolutely belongs on this list. I was, yeah. Um... I have uh, The Blair Witch Project because I felt like for its time it was really influential. I have Leatherface on here as an honorable mention only because he feels like he's the transition point from like pretend villainy monster things to oh crap this is real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also have Roger Corman for all of the stuff that he's his work in there and his influence on not only the horror genre but many of the most popular directors of his day and time, including Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola and Jack Nicholson and many, many others got their start with Roger Corbin. 
so Alfred. <laughs> yeah, sorry, good old Al. Freddy Krueger almost made this list. Just Freddy. Just yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I would have accepted it. Yeah, that's great. I don't want to say uh, that's the reason why Alfred Hitchcock didn't make my list. <laughs> I'm he deserves a place on the list. So one of the thing, one of the reasons why I'm gonna put Alfred Hitchcock is because like, so while. He's doing all this suspense and thriller, and that's probably his main genre. Um, with things like Psycho, he's introducing this idea of that the the evil and the horrors that we find, can find in society is humans, is human beings. Because oftentimes in those earlier things, our main antagonists, the zombies, or they were spacemen, or they were monsters. Mm -hmm. However, with Psycho, it's like, oh, crap, a person can also do this, with, which helps to go influence your leather faces and your Michael Myers of these things of like our our horror icons don't have to and besides like with Freddy Krueger our horror icons do not have to be these like gleep glops of things they can be people right. um, that are inflicting this horror it's not this idea of for some for it's not this idea of like the persona it's not this idea of an ambiguous idea of evil it's now the personification of yeah. evil we are fighting humans within ourselves and i think that also with what hitchcock's influence is which we are seeing a lot more we are seeing now with our prestige horror with even our jordan peels is that the horror itself doesn't come from shock value yes it comes from building that tension and holding it there and then maybe we're going to do something over the top yeah and i think that that's a really good really good point there that the modern prestige horror that we talk a lot about takes a lot of its influence from Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. And just like that we are in these situations where we're just going to keep building, 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 and we're not necessarily doing the jump scares. Something like Us doesn't have those constant jump scares. Yeah. Uh, Hereditary. I think there's like one or two things where you're like, oh, huh. but like... I would even say something like It, it follows. follows. Like it has one very iconic jump scare, but other than that, it doesn't have a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just like we're going to build that tension yeah. where that's where the horror comes from. It's not from this build, release, build, release that unsuccessful horror movies do it's build 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 oh my gosh yeah release the release is almost oh credits are here we're done <laughs> like, yeah. oh, oh did you mean hereditary yeah. oh there's a thing over there oh cool thanks josh i know <laughs> i'm over here white knuckled <laughs> i felt really similarly about hereditary and us like oh <laughs> yeah, like I like this good good job well made movie <laughs> didn't you know like yeah <sighs> yeah I I think Hitch is a worthy entry onto any list I think maybe on any I, list any list <laughs> the, the comedy yes. biggest influences on comedy uh, have you seen the Thirty Nine Steps it's kind of hilarious <laughs> uh. But, I, like I said, I think I just gave myself an out to not put him on the list because I want to talk about others. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, my number one is uh, a 1919 film called The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary. You mean Tim Burton? I mean Tim Burton. <laughs> uh, what? Tim, Tim Burton, Burton, interesting, actually probably has an influence on how like the how PG-13 horror starts to get yes. made. Because it's like, hmm, the teens like the, the weird stuff. What if we made it weird but oh, scary? What if we made it spirally? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> give it a... Give it a 
staircase. <laughs> and a weeping child yes, at the yeah. top. <laughs> Uh, don't worry guys that's the second time we've done the bit but the first time you're hearing it so don't worry it comes back it'll be back <laughs> um the cabinet of dr calgary is a 1919 film from germany that is a surrealistic german expressionistic film that is essentially an adaptation of dracula with a little bit of frankenstein thrown in there as well and what this film is it's high concept high concept it's high style it is a film that follows the path of the dr calgari and his monster creation and his and the detective who's trying to bring them all in together and so that being said it's one of the first films that uses non-linear storytelling in in the way that it's trying to present things which then creates this whole idea, so many years before Citizen Kane and Pulp Fiction popularized nonlinear storytelling, you've got Calgary here, and he's using it to create this idea of suspense, and therefore he's he's pioneering different editing techniques where we're cross-cutting from not only multiple clips and sections of the day in the current story, but going back and forth in the timeline to help build this transition, this idea of that you start, you... you do one idea until it's at a peak and then you cut to something else and go till its peak and then you cut back to this one over here and you build it again and like that's how you build tension by cross-cutting between stories comes from the editing technique here in the in the cabinet of dr calgari not only that it's a film that uses its its imagery to help build its tension it's very vivid in its realism it it it, it establishes a world that's similar to your own but yet very very different from what you know he starts adding this layer of commentary about consumerism about fascism um about oppressive regimes uh it right layered right into this story here he is one of the hugest influencers on the idea of showing something instead of telling something. He has very few title cards throughout his whole movie, and it's all this visual storytelling, except for this one moment where Dr. Calgari goes a little mad, and we literally start to see text appear on the screen that is what he's supposedly seeing and then he's reacting to that so he's playing with this idea of cinema itself there's a giant plot twist at the end of the movie which which is one of the introduces this idea that a horror film needs to have or can have a plot text like this use of lights and shadow and color and just so many things that are foundational to horror as a genre come from the cabinet of dr calgari and it's it, it to, like Kylie off mic read a list of Tim Burton's favorite films, and if you just Google images of the cabinet of of Dr. Oh, Calgary, it, the the it gives me some suggestions, right? Yeah. Number one, poster, right? Uh -huh. So I can click and look at that poster. Yeah. Number two, Tim Burton. Yeah, like it's like Tim Burton went back in time and made a movie in 1919, <laughs> like. 
It, the fact that this movie is not on his list of inspirations is bonkers. Another big person who you could tell is influenced by this is Dr. Seuss. A lot of his animation and his drawing style really comes, I think, from... I mean, it's in German Expressionism, but also in Surrealism, but also this film in particular only lightened up a little bit. So, yeah, Kalgari, it's worth your time. It's uh, I watched it this week. Um, oh, I need to log that. I watched it this week. It's streaming on YouTube for free. It's in the public domain. So, yeah, The Cabinet of Dr. Kalgari. It's very much worth your time. All right, friends, let's uh, let's do this. Let's play the Planet Hollywood game. Name movies with dance scenes in them. Okay, Love, Simon. What's that story? The Sound of Music. Mamma Mia. High School Musical. Oklahoma. Dance scenes. Footloose. Goofy movie. Grease. Um, South Pacific. Hairspray. Aww. <laughs> nice job. We're just naming musicals at this point. Uh, I started with not a musical. <laughs> and then I went to almost a musical, except yes. for Kevin Bacon doesn't sing in it. Yeah, there you go. All right, friends, if you want to join this conversation, and why wouldn't you? You can do so at friendofafriendpodcast.squarespace.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. We have us a five-star review or any star review, as well as hit that subscribe button. Oh. <laughs> that apparently helps get us listeners. Gets us listeners. Who knows? You can also find us on Facebook at Friend of a Friend Podcast. On Twitter at GWT underscore podcast. YouTube. Ducks Watch Together. Tumblers. Ducks Watch Together. Letterboxd. Derby ACT and Kylie Gallagher. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Josh. Kylie. Quack, 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 quack. quack.